following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Amen. Good morning. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn in your Bibles to uh, <coughs> Exodus chapter 2, uh, we'll be starting in verse 23. Uh, We'll be doing uh, the next three Sundays actually talking about Moses at the burning bush. Um, the question to get us thinking as we begin is, um, you know, we talk a lot about uh, wanting to glorify God with every fiber of our being. And I hope that as followers of Christ, that's something we're serious about, that we think about often. But what do we really mean by that? What does it mean to for us as sinful creatures to glorify God. Um, uh, what do we mean when we say we seek to glorify God with our life or make his name great among the nations? What can we as sinful human beings possibly do to make God's name greater than it already is? Right? Uh, well, um, I hope to answer that as we kind of look through Moses and the burning bush because I believe in this story God shows uh, how he uniquely glorifies himself uh, through people like us. Right? So we'll get there, but let's start by reading through. Uh, we're going to read through kind of verse by verse, and I want to just highlight uh, some key thoughts as we read through it. So you can follow along in your Bibles, or I will also have it up on the screen. But starting in chapter 2, verse 23, we'll go down through verse uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, and it starts off like this. It says, uh, during those many days, uh, meaning the many days while Moses was in, Med- in, in, in Midian, so 40 years, so those many days, okay, not just a week or two, those many days, the king of Egypt died. Uh, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. A couple things to highlight there real quick. First, the death of Pharaoh meant that it was now possible for Moses to return to Egypt. The way it worked back in those days when the king died who had sentenced you to death, if you survived until he died, you were kind of off the hook. Uh, and those, uh, those guilty verdicts wouldn't carry on to the next king. So it uh, means Moses could go back to Egypt without fear of being executed. Um, but even though there's a new king, it's clear that the situation in Egypt hasn't changed any, right? The Israelites are still suffering under terrible oppression and slavery. Uh, and for the first time in the book of Exodus... Not that this is the first time that it's happened, but the first time we see it, uh, it says that the people of Israel were crying out to God because of their oppression. They were praying to God that he would come and deliver them, rescue them. Now, I I assume that they were praying before this, but this is the first time in the text that that it points that out, that they they were praying. They were crying out to God because of their oppression. And it says that God saw and he remembered his covenant promises and he knew. So kind of mark those words. He saw, he heard, he remembered, he knew. Because we'll see those again. 
Uh, and it's really an amazing thing that the infinite creator God of the universe takes notice of us, right? He created the whole universe, but his focus is on planet Earth and on the people he's created, and he is watching, right? He's, he's taking interest in not just the Israelites, but in you and I, right? He's looking at our lives. Continues on in chapter 3. <clears throat> now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, uh, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, we know that Moses has been now in Midian for 40 years. Um, and much like his, his ancestor Jacob, we see that he's taking care of sheep, working for his father-in-law. Right, so for 40 years, he's been herding sheep all over the wilderness, out in the desert of, uh, of Midian. Um, and after 40 years, it's pretty clear that he's no longer a prince of Egypt. Like the guy, the Moses who came to Midian now 40 years later is a much different guy. He is just a shepherd. And not even, unlike Jacob, you know, Jacob at least was able to accumulate and build up his own flock. Apparently Moses wasn't bright enough to do that. He's just taking care of his father-in-law's flock. He doesn't even own his own sheep. So he's essentially just a hired hand, uh, a shepherd, poor, right? Nothing spectacular about him. Uh, and another thing we notice here is that he comes to the mountain of God. Uh, we know that he probably traveled uh, several weeks, two, three, four weeks to get to this location. He's not in Midian. Right? He's taking the sheep, looking for pasture, in this dry desert climate. Right? And, and he didn't go, like, this is not like a theme park, you know, with big signs. Mountain of God, this way, right? Uh, little, little, little souvenir shops, you know, get your own little... Mountain of God mag magnet for your refrigerator, right? No, nothing like that. It got the designation after this event, right? This event, the, the burning bush, is how it got its name, the Mountain of God. Before that, Moses didn't identify it that way. Nobody else would have either, right? But um, because it becomes a place that Moses will come back to as well as others, Elijah, others, it's, it's known as the Mountain of God. Verse 2, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Uh, so you get the picture. Moses is out in um, this very desert area, Mount Sinai. There's a lot of speculation about where this is. We don't really know. Um, but wherever it is, Moses is on this mountain somewhere, probably looking for pasture for his sheep, possibly looking for a spring to water them, or maybe just a shady spot to get out of the heat. Uh, he's wandering around. As presumably the sheep are following him or you know, somewhere. I don't know where the sheep are, but he's wandering around. And he sees this amazing sight, this bush that's on fire. Now, I doubt that this is the first time he had seen something like this. Um, in a dry place, there are forest fires, there's grass fires. Um, uh, but this one is striking because uh, it continues to burn. And uh, I, I enjoy playing with fire. There's really nothing like a good, you know, burning stuff. And you, know, you take, take, take a, this is not a huge tree. It's a small bush. It's a dry land, dry climate. If you wanted to light a bush like this on fire, 
I'm telling you, it would go up in a blaze of glory that would last about 15 seconds, right? And it would be done. But this, this bush does not do that. It just keeps burning. It just keeps burning. And Moses is going, now this is different. I've seen bushes burn. I've never seen it like this. It grabs his attention. And of course, we know, and the author tells us that, that it's God that's in this bush, specifically an angel of the Lord. Um, angel of the Lord is biblical language meaning God himself, right? It, uh, but it means, and it's a, it's a theophany, it means God has come down and give a visible appearance of his being for the purpose of communicating uh, information to, to, in this case, Moses. Now, angel does not mean like a dude in a white bathrobe with cheesy golden wings, you know, which is kind of how we picture it. It's what Christmas does to us. Christmas makes us picture all angels kind of look like five-year-olds dressed up for the Christmas nativity. Um, now, the idea here is that uh, he is appearing in a heavenly form versus a earthly form. Sometimes God would ap- appear in a very human form. For example, when the guys showed up to visit Abraham, he thought they were just people. There was nothing heavenly about them. But this is this flaming fire. Right? There's something that's very heavenly, very otherly worldly about it. Um, and it certainly gets his attention. That's kind of the point here. So much so that it says that Moses turns aside. Right? It, re, it, it reroutes his course. It alters his path. And not just for this moment, but it ends up, as we know, altering his path for the rest of his life. Right? Such is, such is this, this spectacle. And now he's headed in a different direction. In verse 4, it says, When the Lord saw, saw that he turned aside... When God noticed that he turned and changed direction, then God called, out, uh, called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. <clears throat> it's interesting that God does not speak until he sees that Moses has turned aside. That Moses has, that, that he's got Moses' full attention. He's got important things to say to Moses, and he wants uh, Moses fully captured by the sight, by him, by his presence. Uh, and when he sees that, it says that he calls out and he uses his name twice, Moses, Moses. Uh, most of us probably don't address each other this way, right? Tim, Tim. Like, unless, well, some people, my wife does a lot because I'm deaf. <laughs> I just don't hear the first time, right? Um, sometimes we, we use the, the, the dual name thing as parents for kids. Kids know this, but it's not the first name twice. It's the first name followed by the middle name, and it means what? Yeah, oh, you're in trouble, right? Um, the whole first name, middle name, it means something. Well, likewise, when God uses Moses' name twice, it means something. But in this case, it doesn't mean Moses is in trouble. It means it's, it's a way of expressing affection and endearment back in that time. It is, it is an affectionate calling. Uh, Moses, my friend. Moses, the one I care about. I have something to, to tell you. Uh, but his first word of instruction is not all that endearing. He says, don't come any closer. Right? Hold up right there. Moses, Moses, I love you, but you've got to keep some space here. 
Right? You've got to keep some distance. Do not come near. You are on holy ground. And you need to take off your shoes. And uh, this burning bush has, has turned this mountainside into a holy temple of God, an outdoor temple of God, and it's sacred space. And so just like in Thailand, you go into somebody's houses, what do you do? You take off your shoes. Same way in that day, in that culture, you, you honor people by taking off your shoes when you went into, especially a temple, a holy place. Um, but what's significant here is that there has to be distance. There has to be space. Um, and, and the reason is that he is a holy God. And it's a very, very clear, vivid picture that sin separates us from God. Right? And the distance is not so much important because you know, really we are infinitely separated from God. But the picture is this. Moses, there, there has to be a separation. There has to be a buffer. You are, I am a holy God. You are not holy. If you came into my presence, if you drew near to me, the holy fire of God would consume you because of sin. Um, and of course, Moses would come back to this very spot after the Exodus, and God would give to Moses the laws and regulations, the means by which to make atonement, so that he could come as one into God's presence because he had been made holy and clean. And praise God, uh, Jesus has done that for us, right? Uh, there is no longer distance. In fact, in Hebrews, God says we, we can draw into, we can draw near to the presence of God before his holy throne. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. Because we have a high priest who has cleansed us and made us so that we can stand before God holy and blameless. Right? But Moses was not there yet. So um, he has to remain at a distance. And then in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Okay, now, anybody, does this sound familiar? I told you to pay attention to those words. So if it doesn't sound familiar, you're not paying attention. Wake up. I even highlighted them, right? I've seen. I've heard. I know. Right? Uh, it's uh, we, got the, we got that word before, but now God speaks these words to Moses. He gives something of his, and reveals something of his heart. He shows Moses. So Moses knows what God has been doing. And here's the thing, you know, it's been at least uh, 80 years, 80 years since Moses was born, right? At least 80 years the people have been suffering. And it would be very easy to think after all those years, God must not notice Right? God must have forgot about us. God must not really care. But God wants to make it very clear to Moses, no, I care. I, I am seeing. I am, I am tuned in. I know what's going on. And he wants Moses to know that, to know God's heart. In verse 8, it says, it says and as a, as a response, as a result of this, I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land that is Egypt to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all those other ites, right, that we all love so well. Um, so, so here's the thing. This is, and this is actually new information. In the first section, we saw that God hears, he sees, and he knows. Now, we see that God, because of that, is going to act. 
He is taking action. He is doing something. And he uses the language, I have come down. Now, it doesn't mean that God was not already there. God's everywhere present, right? He's omnipresent. That's the word, right? He's everywhere. It doesn't mean that God, you know, wasn't with them. But it's, it's, it's a language, anthropomorphic language, language that helps us understand that now God is engaging. He's coming in a way he wasn't before as deliverer and rescuer. He's coming to personally intervene and do something about the situation. Uh, and he says what he's going to do is he's going to rescue them. He's going to bring them up out of Egypt and he's going to take them to the promised land. Right? He's going to fulfill the second part of the promise to Abraham. The first one was that he would make them great, then that he would take them up to the promised land. And it's, it's Canaan, right? That's why he names all these places. It's the place where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had lived. And he says it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, of course, the visual images of that sounds, seems kind of odd. You know, a place just dripping with honey seems like a sticky place to walk, right? Um, well, it's an image. It's, it's a metaphor, right? Um, it's flowing, and it's a picture of abundance. It's, you could use the word, translate it really, it's gushing. It's gushing. It's not just a little trickle. It's gushing with milk and honey. But why milk and honey? And lots of people have theories on this. Here's my theory. Um, Notice he doesn't say it's a land flowing with broccoli and toast. Right? No, there's nothing wrong with broccoli and toast, right? It's, it's a staple. It's food. I don't, can't say I love broccoli, but it's, it's, it has n- nutrition. You could live on broccoli and toast. But I'm going to write a book, and I'm going to call it The Broccoli and Toast Diet, because apparently you can make money now creating diets, my own diet, right? Uh, that's not what he says, though. He says what? The land of milk and honey. I think one of the points is that milk and honey is extravagant. It's, it's, it's not essential, right? You can live without milk and honey. But, um, but you know what happens when you mix milk and honey together and you freeze it? You've got ice cream, right? And ice cream is a good thing. So, you could, so I, like I would translate it this way. I'm going to lead you to a land of donuts and ice cream, right? It's not just a, it's flowing, right? It's, it's abundance, but it's abundance that's, not just the basics, not just the meager essentials, but a place of abundant goodness, right? It's a good place. Uh, so from slavery and oppression to the land of donuts and ice cream. Okay, this is good. This is good. And this is how God intervenes and delivers. Verse 9, And now, behold, the cry, cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have... S- seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. For the third time in these few verses, we get this, again, this picture of God seeing and hearing and knowing and understanding what is going on there. Uh, first time he said, because of that, I, am going, I have come down to deliver. He says it again. Now he says, now Moses, come and I'm going to send you. And this seems to me a little odd. It's kind of like Nate this morning. He said, he said, if you've got problems with Elvanto, I'm here to help you. Email Ted, right? This is what it kind of sounds like to me, right? It's like, I'm here to help you. Talk to Moses, right? Okay, is this really, I mean, this, like, well, we'll get back to this, okay? What is that about anyway? Um, 
We'll come back to that. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God responds, uh, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, um, that I have sent, uh, uh, sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. A couple of things here. The word serve, uh, you shall serve, it's plural. So in other words, not, not Moses serving on the mountain, but all the people would serve. And the word serve there uh, is, a, is a great Hebrew word that can mean both serve and worship at the same time. Uh, in, in Old Testament concepts, serving was worship. And worshiping was serving. And he says, uh, this is the sign. I'm going to bring you out. And you as a nation, you and all Israel will stand on this mountain and you will serve slash worship me here. Right? Uh, and that's going to be the proof that, that I'm the one who sent you. Um, Moses says, you know, who am I? Right? Who, who am I to do this? God says, don't worry about it. I am with you. Uh, ESV translates it, uh, but I will be with you. It's probably better translated because I will be with you. You don't have to worry about this because I will be with you. Um, Moses tried doing this once already and he, he, was fa- he, he failed at it, right? Doing it in his own strength, using his own influence, his own connections in Egypt, his own status in Egypt. Now he says, who am I? I no longer have that influence. Nobody knows me there. I can't just walk into Pharaoh's presence anymore like I used to. God says, don't worry about it. I will be with you. I am going to do it uh, this time by my power, and I am going to do it through you. Uh, I want to look at, at two things in this passage. One, uh, why God works. Why does God save? Why does God rescue and redeem lost people like Israel or like us? And then I want to look a little bit at at exactly um, the way he does that. So let's kind of sum sum this passage up with those two questions. The first one, why God works? Why does God save? Well, ultimately it's a matter of God's character. It's, It's really who God is. And we see that as, as he lays out these descriptions that I've emphasized so much. Uh, he hears the cries of the hurting. Right? He's tuned in to the cries of people who are hurting and suffering. And here's the deal. When anyone, anyone prays to God genuinely and cries out to him because of their struggle, God hears. God hears. And there's a certain amount of faith implied in this crying out. Right? It's the kind of crying out that identifies there is hope in no other place but in God. Right? So, of course, there's people in, I know in Thailand and other places around here who believe in lots of gods who are very superstitious, and they will pray to, God, to the God of the Bible, the God we worship, Jesus, as one of many gods that kind of hedge their bets, right? cover all the bases. But that's not the kind of crying out that God's talking about here. He's talking about a person who cries out to God because he alone... Can, can, can fix it, right? It's, it's, a, it's a cry of faith. God, you alone can solve my problems. Uh, it says also that he remembers his promises, right? The basis of faith is our conviction 
uh, partly on God's character, but we know that because he's communicated his character and his promises to us. He told Abraham, I'm going to make you great and I'm going to give you this land. Okay, you're not going to be forever in Egypt. You're going to have your own place, this land of promise and of abundant blessing. Right? Likewise, we have been given precious promises about Jesus. And we pray not because of the promises to Abraham, but because of the better promises uh, through, through Christ, that he would come and he would save, and that uh, all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus shall what? Shall be saved, right? That as many as believed in him have the right to be called the children of God. Right? And along with that comes a whole list of promises we don't have to talk about today. But God promises that we pray, we cry out, we seek his help because he's promised to help us. He's told us that's what he would do. Uh, thirdly, we saw that he watches closely. He sees. And the idea of that word is not just that he sees kind of randomly, but that he is extremely attentive. He's not, he didn't just see it once for a glimpse. He's been constantly watching. And even though 80 or 100 or maybe 200 years have gone by, and they may feel like God's not watching, he's watching. He is attentive. Right? We may feel that way sometimes, that God, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't care about my struggles. I'm struggling, I'm suffering, I'm depressed, I am hurting, I'm suffering. And I don't think God even notices. Uh, God notices. I mean, he notices. In fact, uh, he is so vigilant, and he's so, he notices so much that he, the last phrase he finally says, it says, and God knew. And God knew, Right? He just leaves it at that. And, and, and in, in the Hebrew word for know, uh, as, we, as we know, it's a word of intimate personal experience. Right? So it's used as a metaphor for sexual relations between a husband and wife. You know, he knew his wife. It means not just a distant knowledge, an academic head knowledge. It's personal acquaintance with at a very intimate level. Um, in other words, God is personally connected and in, intimately involved in the suffering of his people, right? Whatever you are going through, whatever you are struggling with, as hard as it is that God doesn't seem to be answering you right at this moment, know this. God knows what you are going through at the deepest, deepest level. And it's implied in that statement that he cares, right? He cares deeply about what's going on with you, about your suffering and your struggle. And, and, and this really wraps up what did, the why of, of God's saving work. Why does God save? Why does God step in? Why does he come down from heaven and do something to help us? Well, because he cares about us so deeply. He loves us. He is watching. We are precious in his sight. Um, so if you are hurting, if you are struggling, if you are dealing with difficult times in your life, know he has not abandoned you. Right? He is intimately connected with what you are going through, no matter how difficult and horrible it is. He is in the middle of it. And if we wait and cry out to him and wait on him, he will act. Right? He will rescue. He will, he will work in time. Um, but the second question, uh, the, the, this, this passage tells us some very interesting things about the way God works. Not only of his heart, but his methods. And I find this very fascinating. 
Because if I was God, I, I would not do it the way he does. Right? That's why I'm not, right? Because he, he's, his thoughts are way above and beyond ours. But I'm thinking, you know, if, if, if uh, like Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, I've got a plan. Let's just kill off the Egyptians, you know, just send a Egyptian plague. Forget, you know, frogs. Let's just do bubonic plague, you know, just wipe them out, right? Or send down like the death angel. Forget Moses. Forget, just send the death angel. Don't kill the firstborn. Just kill them all, right? Um, this seems so much more efficient, or just show up in a blazing pillar of glory and light and just leave those people. Not gonna, Pharaoh's not going to argue if God shows up in blazing glory. He's not going to argue with that. But he'll argue with Pharaoh, So I mean with Moses. So why does God work this way? Seems hard, right? This is easier ways to, to pull this off. But that's not how God works. Um, and really the, the, the problem could be focused in this simple question. Why, why a burning bush? I mean, why a burning bush? Everything about this? Why does God choose to speak to Moses from a bush on fire? Does it seem odd to you? See, it doesn't seem odd to us because we've been inoculated by Sunday school, right? We've heard this story too many times. This ought to, be, this ought to seem really extremely odd, Right? Imagine, you know, let's put it in our context. You go out in your yard tomorrow morning and this tree in your yard is on fire, right? And God talks you to the tree. It's like, okay, God, I get you want to talk to me, but why do you have to burn the tree? Torch the tree, right? Can't you just talk to me in person, right? What is that about? Well, um, he does speak that way in this passage. And... Um, I think it means something. So let's see if we can un- you know, answer the question, why the burning bush? And to answer that question, first off, we need to understand a little bit about the problem of, back to my original question, of what it means for us to glorify God. When you say you're going to glorify God, what do you mean by that? When you say, God, I magnify your name, what do you mean by that? Right? And here's the problem. We're trying to magnify the infinite, Okay, now if you're smart, if you're quick, if you're on top of things, you're going to start picturing what this looks like. How do you magnify the infinite? Right? How do you do that? Um, to magnify something means to make it bigger, to blow it up so that you can see it better. I'm at a point in my life where I cannot see small things. Right? I need to magnify them. Small print, small anything. I need it magnified so I can see it. So sometimes I will use a magnifying glass to make it bigger, to magnify it, right? But when we say we're going to magnify God, it's kind of like saying, I'm going to take my magnifying glass and I'm going to go magnify the ocean. <laughs> what does that mean? Right? It's already so big, you can't see all of it. You're going to make it bigger with a magnifying glass? Yeah, that's kind of the picture of us magnifying God. He's infinite. How are you going to make him bigger? Right? How are you going to do that? Now, we say we're going to glorify God. Glory means his brilliance, his radiance. He shines with brilliant light, right? Saying I'm going to glorify God, it's like saying I'm going to shine a flashlight on God to make him brighter. Right? Like saying you're going to shine a flashlight on the sun to make it visible, right? He is light. So what does it mean for you to glorify him? Well, that's a problem, right? Um, 
Well, obviously, when we use the word magnify or glorify or those kind of words, exalt, it means we're going to lift him up like he's not already high, right? See, we use all that language. What do we mean by that? Well, we don't mean that we're going to actually magnify him or we're going to shine light on him or we're going to somehow move him up a few notches. He's supreme. What we mean, what we mean is this, that we, we want to call attention to his exalted status. We want to call attention to the fact that he is magnificent. He's infinite. He's glorious. He is radiant glory shining itself. But we need to call attention to it. We need to point people to it so they see it. Because the reality is they don't. Even though it's true. And, and what we see in this passage is, is that God does this most brilliantly. He does this most powerfully when he takes his radiant, infinite, mag- magnanimous glory and he drops it onto something as common and ordinary as a shrub. Right? That there's something that grabs your attention. You know, if, if God had appeared to Moses in a blazing, glorious sunset, uh, it probably wouldn't have grabbed his attention. Why? Because blazing, being, you know, a blazing fire is what sunsets are, right? There's nothing particularly odd or extraordinary about that. But an everyday common bush that's ablaze with the glory of God, that got Moses' attention. It caused him to turn aside and look and be drawn to God. Right? Well, that's the brilliance of what it means for us to glorify God. And it's the brilliance of how God does this in the world. You know, he could show up as a blazing light. A lot of times I wish he would. You ever wish that? Like the resurrected Jesus would come with like the whole shining suit and everything, you know? Uh, it's like, that would just be cool. I would, I, would, I would worship God if I saw that, right? But the reality is most of the world wouldn't, right? Because it's, it's, it's glory and it's glorious, But there's something that grabs our attention when that glory is found in unexpected places, in the common, mundane, and ordinary. See, God used a bush. God used Moses. Why? Not because he was a prince of Egypt. He had to wait till all that was thoroughly scrubbed out of his life until he was just a poor, nothing shepherd. And then God says, now come and I will send you. And Moses says, who am I? And God says, it doesn't matter who you are. You're a bush. You're a shrub, right? You're, and, and I love that God, God chose a bush, right? He doesn't pick an orchid that has a spectacular blossom. He picks this ugly bush, plain ordinary. He doesn't pick a grand, massive oak tree. Now that's something that would carry the glory of God, right? No. He says, I want, I want, Moses, I want you to be a bush. I want you to be nothing so that when my glory fills you, it's going to grab people's attention. And what's amazing is we see God doing this all through Scripture. And I don't have time, but you go through the Old Testament, New Testament, God is using very common, ordinary things. But we see, and, and so in that sense, I think it really is a paradigm for how God does ministry. And by paradigm, I mean an example serving as a model or pattern. It's the pattern of how God saves, how God works from Genesis to Revelation. 
he comes down in glory and he possesses and fills shrubs to grab the attention of the world. And he does that most poignantly and most significantly in Jesus. Right? Jesus came in the weakness of human flesh. He emptied himself and became what? Nothing. Right? Uh, but God poured out his spirit upon him so that everything Jesus did was as a burning bush. He's the ultimate picture of a burning bush. And while the fire of God came upon him and, and the holiness of God consumed sin as Jesus took, his, took our sin on himself on the cross and God poured out his fiery wrath on Jesus on the cross, it did not consume him. And he rose to new life, right? And that's God's pattern for ministry. It's just how God works. Um, Isaiah 53 puts it this way, For he, that is Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry, dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Right? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Right? He knew grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Amazing parallels between this passage and, and uh, Exodus. I mean, uh, you can go back and meditate on it. Um, Jesus was the ultimate burning bush, and it's the way that God chooses to minister. So here's, here's the, the grand application. I've got three minutes to do this real quick. You're burning bushes, right? You and I will give glory to God, not because we're mighty oak trees, not because we're glorious orchids. We're going to give glory to God. We're going to exalt him in our life simply by being nothings, by being common, by being bushes, broken and sinful bushes at that, right? So how does this work? Well, a couple of practical things. First of all, we need to... We need to become nothing. I love that when God comes to Moses, he says, I'm going to send you. Um, Moses does not say, oh God, you know, you picked the right guy. You know, I know Egyptian. I know my way around Pharaoh's court. And I went to this workshop and I've been thinking about this whole rescuing Israel thing. And I've got a plan. Let me, let me explain to you, God, how we're going to do this. Right? And he says, I said, who am I? Who am I? I am nothing. Right? It took 40 years, well, it took 80 years, actually, for Moses to get to that point so God could use him. Right? We've got to get to that point if we want to be used by God. And I'm not saying we shouldn't plan or go to seminars or workshops or learn things. I'm not saying that we can't be strategic, but here's the thing. Ultimately, for God to use us, to fill us with his fire, we've got to become nothing, We've got to become the people who, when God calls us, we say, God, you got the wrong person. I am nothing. I have nothing to bring that's going to be ultimately effective in doing your work. That's got to say, finally, you know, finally, <laughs> yay, you're there. Right? How do you do that? Well, I think you spend a lot of time in the school, in the wilderness of solitude. Don't have time to go into it now, but that's what you need. You need to be in, in the school of solitude alone with God. Second thing, uh, God appears to Moses and he pours out his heart to him. He reveals his heart. We need to learn, listen and learn. 
when you be in the word, hearing God speak, um, filling ourselves with something of God's heart, right? understanding what it is that moves and drives and motivates God. Most of us have far too, myself, I have far too small understanding of how much God loves suffering people. Right? My, my heart does not break with the things that break God's heart. Uh, and, and God carefully imparts that heart to Moses. We need that heart. Thirdly, we need to be surrendering to his call. And, and, and get this, God does not, what is God's call on Moses' life? And Moses would say, well, he says, go to, his, go to Egypt. That's not the call. Notice what it says. God said, Moses, therefore, come. Right? Look it up in your Bibles. It says, Come and I will send you. Right? God's call is ultimately and supremely to come to him and is to come with submission and surrender. And it's interesting, it's, it's an imperative, it's a command, but it's a choice. He says, he says, Moses, if you will, if you're up to this, come to me. And as you come, you must lay down everything and surrender it to me. And I will direct you. And I will send you. And you, you will go. But the first thing is to come in submission to God, to surrender and choose to lay our life at his feet. Lastly, um, uh, we need to live with purpose. We need to be people who live very intentionally about giving glory to God. Um, Again, to summarize, you know, we give glory to God because we are nothings who are on fire. We are shrubs who are on fire with the glory and power of God. He wants to fill us with himself. And he tells Moses, I will be with you. I will be the fire blazing in your life. God wants to do that in our life. But the reason he wants to do that is to grab people's attention, to shock them saying, wow, Tim did that? Unbelievable, right? He is nobody. Yeah, he's nobody. But man, I see God's power in him. Right? We, we get noticed. We grab people's attention for God. We point people to his majesty and glory when we are people who do the unexpected. Okay, the burning bush grabbed Moses' attention because it was doing something unexpected. And we do that when we are filled with the fire of, God, fire of God in our life and we do incredibly unexpected things like um, love people unconditionally, like even annoying people. <laughs> when we give generously and unselfishly, when we serve everybody, even those who are way below us, when we're forgiving our enemies, we're, we're being kind to those who hate us. Um, you know, when we, when we are so radically transformed that we're not the people people knew us to be, right? Because we're, we're so different. We are extraordinary because we are so ordinary. But we're filled with the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you so much that you are a God of infinite mercy and power. 
that you see and you hear and you pay attention to our lives and you love us. And in the midst of your love and kindness, you have promised to respond by coming down and rescuing and saving. And you do it in the most unlikely ways by filling us, by using us, just mere shrubs, but filling us with your glory in a way that exalts your name and shows your power, shows the wonder of who you are. Lord, thank you for inviting us into your work and for promising to fill us with yourself. Lord, may we be a people thoroughly emptied and thoroughly surrendered so that you may fill us to the full with your glory and power. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.